these are the Greek Myth Files, your entree into the world of Greek myth in a smart but accessible way. They are brought to you by the Classics Program at the University of New Hampshire and its crack team of undergraduates. I'm your host, Professor Scott Smith. In the last episode, we focused on some mythical plagues and talked about the role that the god Apollo had in causing them, as well as his ability to cure them. In this episode, we will turn to some ethical questions about death and dying, and in particular, whether the old should sacrifice themselves for the young. Our first section, however, will be devoted to some healing gods, and especially Apollo's son Asclepius, a god whose only role was healing. We will then confront one of the most bizarre stories in the mythical world, a story in which the Greek hero Admetus tries to find someone to die in his place. So kick back and settle in, gentle listeners, and enjoy our journey into healing and dying in the Greek mythical world. We saw in our last episode that Apollo was the god of plagues and disease and could unleash a torrent of arrows that could cut down humans and animals from a distance. We also saw that he was a god that people could call upon to help save them from disease. But you might be surprised to know that Apollo was not considered a healing god from the very beginning, and that it was only over time that he became regarded as such. In fact, in the fifth book of the Iliad, when Ares, the god of war, is wounded by the mortal Diomedes, with a little help from the goddess Athena, Zeus sends not Apollo to heal him, but the god Pion, whose name means something like the healing one. Earlier in the same book, when Aphrodite is wounded by the same Diomedes, her mother, in an attempt to soothe her pain, tells her the story about Heracles' wounding of the god Hades, who suffered in great pain until Pion soothed it by spreading healing herbs on his wound. The Greek word for healing herbs is pharmaka, which is often translated as drugs, but it almost always refers to some herbal concoction. We'll return to this in a bit. You may not have heard of this rather obscure god, but Pion seems to be a very, very old figure. In fact, the name Pion is found in one of the earliest pieces of writing in ancient Greek that we have, on a clay tablet from the city of Knossos on Crete. And when I say one of the earliest pieces of Greek we have, I mean that it is really old, well before the Greeks had adopted the alphabet from the Phoenicians around 800 BCE and started writing down poems like the Iliad and Odyssey. No, we have to go back about 600 years earlier than that, when a very early form of Greek was represented not by letters, but by signs that stood for syllables, a writing style that we call by the name Linear B. For a long time, we did not even know that Linear B was Greek, and it was only in the 1950s that a British architect by the name of Michael Ventrist deciphered enough of the writing to conclude that it was an early form of Greek. Linear B was the writing system used by a cultural group we call the Mycenaeans, a Greek-speaking people that spread into Greece about 3,500 years ago and created a dynamic culture that had trade contacts throughout the ancient Mediterranean. Archaeologists have even found Mycenaean pottery in the palace of Akhenaten in Egypt in the 14th century BCE, which is probably the high point of Mycenaean culture. It was just a little before this time that the clay tablet that includes the name of the god Pion was written and deposited in a very wealthy room in the palace of Knossos on Crete called the Room of the Chariot, after the elaborate armor and chariot parts found in it. On the clay tablet, we find in Linear B the name Payawone, 
or Pion in classical Greek, along other well-known gods like Athena and Poseidon. It is also probable that the name Pion, which does not seem to have a Greek etymology, may belong to the pre-Greek Minoan period of habitation on the island, but this is still up for debate. Moving forward in time, from the Mycenaean period to a short time after Homer, we have a tantalizing fragment of a poem from Hesiod, or at least a poem people in antiquity thought was by Hesiod. It's a short two-line quotation that was included in a late commentary to Homer's Odyssey, but the commentator did not include any context, so we don't exactly know what's going on. But what the commentator does tell us is that Apollo and Pione are two different figures. It reads, Unless Phoebus Apollo were to rescue from death, or Pione himself, who knows the drugs for all. The fragment is so short that we do not even know who is the person being saved by Apollo or Pion, and it's not even clear whether or not Apollo here is considered a healing god or just one that has the power to save someone from death by other means. It's Pion who has the pharmaca, those herbal drugs that can soothe our ailments. Moving forward in time a bit, Solon, an Athenian thinker and politician from the early 6th century BCE, also views Apollo and Pion as different figures, with different realms of influence. In an important poem about the vagaries of human life, no matter how much we try to control the situation, Solon writes as follows. Another has been made seer by Lord Apollo, who works from afar, and if the gods are with him, he sees a distant calamity coming upon a man. But assuredly neither augury nor sacrifice will ward off what is destined. Others, engaged in the work of Pion, rich in drugs, are iatroi, that's the Greek word for doctors, by the way. For them, too, there is no guarantee. Often agony results from a slight pain, and no one can provide relief by giving soothing drugs. Whereas another, in the throes of a terrible and grievous disease, he quickly restores to health with the touch of his hands. There's that word pharmaca again, but drugs are what Pion offers, not Apollo. As for Apollo, his realm is prophecy and foresight. But despite Apollo's and Pion's help, Solon tells us that, for all our attempts to control the world around us, with all of our doctors and forecasters, humanity cannot guarantee its own well-being and safety, no matter how hard it tries. Anyways, by the 5th century BCE, just about 100 years after Solon, we find that the two figures had fused together, with Pion disappearing as an individual figure. His name, however, was preserved in the form of an epithet, or title, of Apollo, who was called Pion Apollo, especially when that god was called upon as an averter of evil and disease. By this time, we start finding references to Apollo as an iatros, or healer, and because of his powerful position as the most Greek of all the gods, he got to survive while Pion became little more than a title. The commentator on the Odyssey that I mentioned above tells us that later poets considered the two figures to be one and the same. For those interested in the process of a god merging with other gods and taking over their functions, the technical term is called syncretism, a term meaning a merging together. But this deep dive into religion has taken us far afield from the myths, the stories told about the gods and heroes in the distant past. So let's leave Pion Apollo aside for a bit and turn to one of his sons, Asclepius, who is, through and through, a healing god. (music) 
In this segment, we won't leave religion entirely behind because you can't discuss the mythical stories about Asclepius without considering his incredible popularity throughout Greece and beyond as a god of healing from a religious point of view. And by incredible popularity, I mean it. Although there were early centers for his worship, his cult following spread like wildfire throughout the Greek world in the 5th and especially the 4th centuries BCE, and temples and healing centers popped up all over the Greek mainland and well beyond. His main cult center was in a city in the northeastern region of the Peloponnesus called Epidaurus, an archaeological site well worth visiting today, in part because you can see the best-preserved Greek theater we have, but also because there survived the foundations of the famous Abaton, the building where visitors wishing to be healed would go to sleep while the god did his thing. You'll want to remember that Epidaurus became the most famous location for his healing cult, but now let's turn to the mythical stories about this famous god. We'll start with his mother and place of birth, which were hotly debated in ancient Greece. Many regions claim that Asclepius belonged to them, not least to increase the popularity of their healing cult centers. The most common early version has it that Apollo had sex with Coronis, a mortal woman who was a daughter of Phlegius, who was the king of the Thessalians in northern Greece. Keep that place Thessaly in mind. It's going to come up a lot. Anyway, when Coronis was pregnant with Apollo's son, and spoiler alert, that's going to be Asclepius, she decided to have an affair with a mortal man by the name of Iscus. Such a lack of faithfulness was bound to end badly, and Apollo sends his sister Artemis to kill Coronis for her transgression. Side note here, it's hard to understand exactly what Coronis had done wrong, for gods do not usually stick around for a long-term committed relationship, but in this case Apollo seems to have been keeping tabs on her. At any rate, our fullest early source for the story, the poet Pindar, tells us that Artemis did not kill just Coronis, she also caused the deaths of many of her neighbors, as if her presence had infected others. When Coronis's dead body was placed on the funeral pyre and the flames started to consume her, lo and behold, Apollo shows up and saves the unborn child from her corpse, and this is how Asclepius was born. Apollo takes the baby and entrusts him to the care of the centaur Chiron, who lived nearby on a Thessalian mountain called Pelion. This centaur, like all other centaurs, had the body of a horse, but the torso, arms, and head of a human. But unlike other centaurs, Chiron was cultured and educated, not wild and unruly. In particular, Chiron knew the art of medicine, and a later catalog in Latin of discoveries and inventions states bluntly that, quote, the science of herbs and drug-making was discovered by Chiron, the son of Saturn and Philura, end quote. Learning from Chiron and not Apollo, Asclepius became a great doctor, as Pindar tells us. Now all who came to him afflicted with natural sores, or with limbs wounded by gray bronze or by a far-flung stone, or with bodies racked by summer fever or winter chill, he relieved all of their various ills and restored them. Some he tended with calming incantations, while others drank soothing potions, or he applied drugs to all parts of their bodies. Still others he made right with surgery. Before moving on to other contested versions about his birth, we might pause here to note that Coronis is a mortal woman, meaning that Asclepius ought to be mortal himself. And indeed, in the earliest mentions of him, he is squarely put in the human realm, fathering important doctors that take part in the Trojan War. Asclepius very much straddles the line between human and god in Greek myth, until his healing cult becomes so widespread 
and so important that he becomes established as a healing god through and through. Because of the importance of Asclepius and his healing cult, people in other locations in Greece created stories and connections that tied him to their locations. In contrast to the Thessalian tradition outlined above, the Mycenaeans all the way in southwestern Greece claimed that Asclepius was the son of Apollo and a local woman named Arsinoe and had been born there in Mycenae. The second century travel writer Pausanias tells us that the Mycenaeans, even in his day, still showed the graves of Asclepius' sons who had participated in the Trojan War. It's very likely that they were attempting to give legitimacy to their own sanctuary of Asclepius, which is also very old. The Arcadians, too, who lived to the north of the Mycenaeans, attempted to claim that Asclepius was born in their land. What we're encountering here is something that happened quite a lot. Different peoples created different myths and genealogies to claim mythical figures, including gods, for themselves. A similar thing happened about the birthplace of Zeus, king of the gods. Lots of places made a claim that Zeus's first days were spent in their land, adding legitimacy and prestige to their region. So if the Mycenaeans and Arcadians could challenge Thessaly as the birthplace of Asclepius, it was only a matter of time before Epidaurus got in on the game. We're not exactly sure when the story that Asclepius was born in Epidaurus surfaced, but it was probably about the same time that the cult of Asclepius and Epidaurus became world famous and spawned a number of other healing centers throughout Greece. Pausanias, the travel writer we mentioned above, also offers us a local Epidaurian version. It goes like this. When Phlegius traveled south from Thessaly to scope out his next military campaign, his daughter Coronis was with him. Although her father did not know it, she was pregnant with Apollo's child. And when they reached the outskirts of Epidaurus, she went into labor. Not knowing what to do with the baby, she left it on a local mountain to die. But as is true in all mythical stories, a child of a god left out to die is saved in miraculous fashion. One of the goats that happened to be pastured on the mountain provided her milk to the child, while the shepherd dog stood lookout. When the shepherd himself realized that his flock was one goat short and that the dog was missing, he went out in search of them. But when he encountered the baby, a bright flash of light shot forth from him. Quite naturally, the shepherd realized there was something divine about this kid and shrunk back, leaving him alone. Soon Asclepius was healing people who came from far and wide. And remember that mountain Asclepius was exposed on? It was named Mount Brest in Greek. It's as if the city of Epidaurus was the foster mother of the child, providing him milk and care in his infancy. I quite like the story because it preserves the old Thessalian version with Phlegius and Coronis, but creates a new wrinkle by having them happen to be traveling through Epidaurus when Coronis goes into labor. By doing this, the importance of both the old Thessalian center of Asclepius' worship is maintained, while recognizing that Epidaurus is the new power in town. But this is not the only local Epidaurian version we have. In 1885, archaeologists found in Epidaurus a long poetic inscription on stone, which featured, in part, praise of the god Asclepius. Because the inscription was signed, we know who paid for the inscription to be carved, a wealthy man by the name of Isilos, and the inscription can be dated to around 300 BCE. The main reason for the poem is to publicize a law that the festival for Apollo and Asclepius had to be led by two local aristocrats, and that these two local aristocrats had to reaffirm to uphold the aristocratic constitution of the city rather than leaving it to the rabble, the common people. But for our purposes, the important bit comes toward the end, where we read a new and otherwise unattested account of Asclepius' birth. 
In the poem, we learn that Thygius was not a Thessalian, but a local man from Epidaurus who married the daughter of a nobleman who had built the first temple to Apollo in the city. These two had a daughter named Aigle, but later she was also called Coronis because of her beauty. And when the god Apollo saw her in the palace, he, and I quote the Greek exactly here, ended her virgin period of life. Impregnated, Aigle then gave birth in Apollo's temple to a child which Apollo named Asclepius. And Asclepius is called in the poem, the one who brings an end to diseases, the giver of health, a great boon to mortals. In this final version, Asclepius is utterly and completely associated with Epidaurus. Both his mother and father are native to the region, and there are no ties to any other section of Greece. The political use of myth in this case is clear, and Esilaus, the author, is basically trying to say this. All of you who are seeking the comfort that the god offers, don't go anywhere else. Bring your maladies and your money to us, because our land is the location that the god was conceived of and born. Many people with seemingly incurable afflictions flocked either to Epidaurus or to the other hundreds of healing centers around the Greek and Roman worlds, which were called Asclepia. These were a sort of spa or health center, with priests and other attendants who provided other services to ailing visitors. But the central goal of an Asclepian was to find a cure through what is called incubation, which in Greek means something like sleeping in. This incubation took place in a special room that could be only entered after ritually bathing and making sacrifice. This special room was called an abaton, or in Greek, not to be entered, that is, except for patients. During incubation, the god or one of his attendants would appear to patients in dreams and would cure them in various ways, and sometimes even the snake that is Asclepius' attendant would also come in and heal the patient. Asclepius' association with serpents is likely based on the idea that snakes are associated with the ground and have the ability to be reborn by shedding their skin. Anyway, at Epidaurus and in other healing locations, we have found ancient inscriptions that describe the miraculous cures of the god. These are probably not real accounts, but embellished by the priests of the sanctuary as advertisement to others that visited it. Since many of these are remarkable, we're going to provide you a couple here from Epidaurus. We're changing them from third person to first person to give the account more vividness. I'm Cleo, and I had already been pregnant for five years when I came as a suppliant to the god and went to sleep in the abaton. As soon as I left the abaton and had gone outside of the sanctuary, I gave birth to a boy. And right after his birth, he washed himself in a spring and walked around with me. I wrote on a tablet, I carried this weight in my stomach for five years until I went to sleep and the god made me healthy. I'm Ambrosia, from Athens, and I only had use of one eye. I came as a suppliant to the god. At first, I walked around the sanctuary and laughed at some of the cures that were just unbelievable and impossible, that the lame and blind became healthy just from seeing a dream. When I fell asleep, I had a dream. The god seemed to stand next to me and say that he was going to make me healthy, 
but as compensation, I would have to dedicate a silver pig as a reminder of my earlier ignorance. After he said this, he cut my diseased eye and poured medicine in. When day came, I walked out cured. My name is Pandarus of Thessaly, and I wanted to remove the marks of a tattoo from my forehead that I had gotten when I was a slave. So I came to the god, fell asleep, and had a dream. The god seemed to bind my tattoo with a bandage and told me, when I left the building, to remove the bandage and leave it on the temple as a dedication. When day came, I removed the bandage, and my forehead had been cleared of tattoo, and I dedicated that bandage with the letters on it. After Pandarus left, he sent his friend Echidorus, who was interested in having his own tattoos removed, to Epidaurus with money as a thank offering to the god. What happens next is recorded in another part of the inscription. Don't try and cheat the gods. My name is Echidorus. I'm a friend of Pandarus. When he got back home, he told me about his miraculous cure. When I told him I wanted to go, he gave me money to dedicate to the god when I arrived. But I kept it for myself. When I fell asleep, I had a dream. It seemed that the god stood next to me and asked if I had some money from Pandarus from the town of Eleutheri for a dedication in the sanctuary. I said I had gotten nothing of the sort, but if the god fixed my problem, I would set up a statue with an inscription. After this, the god bound Pandarus's bandage over my tattoo and ordered me, when I left the building, to remove the bandage, wash my face in the fountain, and then look at myself in the water. When day came, I did as ordered. And when I removed the bandage, there were no letters on it. But gazing into the water, I saw that my face had acquired the letters of Pandarus in addition to my own. Not all cures were so remarkable and improbable. An inscription by a person named Julius Apella, sometime after 117 CE, inscribed a thank offering to Asclepius and Epidaurus. In it, he states that in response to his chronic indigestion, Asclepius ordered that he change his diet take daily walks, and get massages from the staff at the Asclepion. Each rubdown, we are told, cost Julius a whole drachma. Here we have a problem solved without a need for elaborate sleep therapy. Besides the story of his birth, Asclepius does not really have much of a role in stories told about the Greek mythical period. There is one exception, and it will lead us to our final story. It involves Asclepius using his medical abilities beyond acceptable limits to raise the dead back to life. How he did this is a bit of a mystery, whether he just became so good at medicine that he could heal what no one else could, or alternatively, he might have had some help. According to one later source, Asclepius had gotten from Athena the blood of Medusa. Somehow, while the blood from Medusa's left side was dangerously poisonous, that of the right side was highly beneficial, to the point that it could bring dead people back to life. No matter how he did it, Asclepius was said to have raised a number of heroes that had died. As to why he did so, Pindar and a few others tell us that he did so to get rich. It must cost a lot to raise people from the dead. In any case, he was so successful at it that Hades, god of the underworld, 
lodged a complaint with Zeus, claiming that the dead in the underworld were diminishing at an alarming rate because of Asclepius' ability. Zeus became worried that humans would learn such powerful medicine from Asclepius that the world would become overpopulated by the race of pesky humans, and so he killed Asclepius with a thunderbolt. You'll remember that we mentioned earlier that Asclepius had a mortal mother, and in the story Asclepius was very mortal, able to die unlike the other deathless gods. Apollo was outraged. How dare Zeus kill his son? And yet, retaliating against the king of the gods was unlikely to go well. So Apollo settled for killing the makers of the thunderbolt that had put an end to his son, the giant Cyclopes who had but a single eye in their foreheads. Now, for those of you out there who are thinking, wait, I thought Odysseus encountered the Cyclops. Well, yes, he did, but these are a whole different group of Cyclopes. Well, now Zeus was outraged. What he really wanted to do was to send Apollo packing to the underworld for the rest of his days. But Apollo's mom, Leto, intervened with Zeus, who we have to remember is also Apollo's father. Though angered, Zeus relented and decided to humiliate Apollo instead by having him serve a mortal for a year. So he was shipped off to Pherae, a Greek city in northern Thessaly, where he served as the herdsman of Admetus, making all of his cows give birth to twins. In other words, Apollo turned out to be a very terrific cowherd, and Admetus in turn proved to be a very kindly master to his god-turned-slave, so much so that Apollo gave him an incredible gift, but we'll come back to that in a bit. Admetus is most famous for the story involving his wife Alcestis, who ends up dying in his place. But Admetus was no slouch as a hero. His family history goes back six generations to Deucalion, the famous first man who survived the Great Flood. Admetus' father was Pheres, who founded the city where Admetus was king. He also took part in some of the great adventures in Greek myth. He accompanied Jason and the other Argonauts on their quest for the Golden Fleece, and he took part in the famous hunt for the Caledonian boar. Even his marriage to his wife involved a triumph of sorts. Alcestis' father, you see, Peleus, had concocted a challenge where potential suitors had to yoke a lion and a wild boar together in order to win her hand in marriage. Fortunately, Admetus had Apollo in his hip pocket, and the god did the impossible job for him, and so Alcestis became Admetus' wife. But then Admetus made a crucial but strangely common mistake among Greek heroes. When he was making a sacrifice at his wedding, he failed to include the goddess Artemis. So when he opened the door to the bridal chamber, he found it filled with coiled serpents. This meant death for him. But Apollo again comes to the rescue by persuading the fates, or according to another version, by getting them drunk, to allow Admetus to live. They agreed to do this so long as he could find someone to die in his place. This led to a remarkable conundrum, an impossible choice. Admetus, still in the prime of his life, was facing his own death. And yet, he knew that he could live into ripe old age if he could just find someone to die in his place. Now imagine yourself in this situation. Facing death, you could escape it if only you found someone else to die for you. Would you try to avoid your own death? And if you did, who would you ask? And if so, how would you approach this delicate request? This is exactly the choice that is the subject of Euripides' play Alcestis, which is not exactly a tragedy because it ends happily even if bizarrely. In it, we find that Admetus' wife Alcestis has chosen to die for him, sacrificing herself voluntarily, and that the play is set on the day that she is set to die. I won't ruin the ending for you. You really should go read this amazing and strange play. 
But what is interesting to me in the current coronavirus pandemic is that Admetus decided to approach his elderly parents first to see if they would die in his place. They were old, after all, and surely they would see the utilitarian logic in this, right? Fairies, I have neither invited you to this funeral, nor do I regard you as one of my friends. Alcestis will not wear any of your gifts. She needs none of it for her burial. She needs nothing of yours. You should have shown your sympathies when I was about to die. Instead, you just stood by, allowing a young person to die, instead of you. You, who are an old man. And now you've come to mourn for her? Despite the fact that you're old, and despite the fact that you've come to the end of your life, you've refused. You did not have the courage to die in place of your young son. Your only son. Instead, you and your wife made Alcestis, a woman who was not even a blood relative of ours, give her own life in your stead. And to this criticism of Admetus, Fares responds, It is true you are my son, and as such I have brought you up to be the master of this house, but I do not owe you my life. There is no such law handed to us by our ancestors, no law that says that fathers must die for their sons, nor is it a law among the rest of the Greeks. Your life is yours, and yours only, and it is yours whether it is a fortunate one or one bereft of fortune. You love the light of day, do you not? Tell me, do you think your old father doesn't? I have no doubt at all that life in the underworld will be very long, and that life here is very short. Short, yes, but sweet nevertheless. Sweet indeed, and that is why you fought without the slightest bit of shame to stay alive long past your fated hour. One of the great things about Greek myth is that it often confronts ethical choices in a sort of abstract setting, far removed from the emotional tension of the present. But the questions about whether the old should sacrifice themselves for the young has become all too real since the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic. As cases in young people started to grow in Italy, doctors, without enough ventilators to go around, were forced to make an impossible choice. Who gets the machine? A 70-year-old or a person in her 30s? In the hard-hit city of Bergamo, doctors were instructed not to put people over 70 on respirators so that the young could be saved. In an interview on NPR, Carlo Vitelli, a doctor in Italy, said, If you have a 99-year-old patient, and you have a kid that needs to be intubated, and you only have one ventilator, I mean, you're not going to toss a coin. Doctors and ethicists have long debated how to conduct triage when many need medical care with limited supplies of doctors and equipment and most states have published clear guidelines how such impossible choices are to be made. For instance, the state of New York, which was hard hit by COVID-19, has a clear policy based on the greatest good for the greatest number of people. But in the document, which is on health.ny.gov, they consider whether years of life saved ought to be a primary decider of who gets treatment. Under such a policy, doctors would attempt to save the maximum number of years rather than the maximum number of patients. 
However, New York has rejected age as a factor and stated that ventilators should be allocated in a manner to maximize the number of survivors, and age should not be a primary factor in triage. Late last month, the U.S. Civil Rights Offices also rejected the rationing of medical use based on age. How we treat the old and vulnerable has come to the fore in our national politics as well. President Trump, eager to get the country's economy up and running, said that the country will have to make some difficult trade-offs to get the economy back into gear, meaning that we'll have to risk more infections to get the country back to work. After the statement, Dan Patrick, the lieutenant governor of Texas, took things to their logical end. On Fox News, he said, No one reached out to me and said, As a senior citizen, are you willing to take a chance on your survival in exchange for keeping the America that all America loves for your children and grandchildren? To put it bluntly, Governor Patrick is suggesting that the elderly, the most vulnerable to the coronavirus, ought to be perfectly happy to risk their own lives for the sake of the young. Essentially, he's saying that Ferries was being selfish for not sacrificing himself for his son Admetus. I wonder what you think about the choices Admetus made and his approach to a difficult situation. What would you do if you were faced with the opportunity to keep on living if another had to die for you? Now, you may be wondering what happened to Admetus' wife, Alcestis. There's a lot going on here, and we could spend a whole episode exploring why Alcestis stepped up to die for her husband, but we'll leave that aside for another episode. But as for the end of the play, I'm afraid you'll have to read it for yourself. The ending is truly bizarre and weird, but the play is definitely worth an hour or so of your time. It may just remind you why Asclepius got thunderbolted. Great thanks go to Julia Summer and A.J. O'Neill, our voice actors who read the inscriptions from Epidaurus, as well as selections from Pindar's Third Pythian Ode and Euripides' Alcestis, as well as to our fabulous sound engineer, Samantha Kutsia. As always, our theme music is Brooklyn Tea by the saxophonist extraordinaire Jared Sims. That's Sims with one M. You should go listen to and buy his music. This has been the Greek Myth Files, signing off again just for a little while. See you next time.